All right, we're back. Uh, a couple of days late. Sorry about that. My fault. Well, this is awesome. <laughs> it's as much my fault. This is, I tell people this is like Christmas for me this time of year and not in like a good way. This is like Christmas and that you have too many things to do. Oh. Because like it's the end of the quarter, um, ton of papers to grade, students all deciding at the last minute they care about their grades. They do suddenly care a lot, mm -hmm. right? It's right like to the last week. Is there anything I can do to get an A? Well, you've not turned anything in <laughs> since January, well, so no. Yes. So what you need to do to get an A is you need to come to lectures, you need to do the readings, you need to write the papers. Well, at this point, though, you need a time machine to go yeah. back and do all those things that you were yeah. supposed to have done. A professor who taught when Hillary and I were in grad school used to like keep a box of Kleenex and he would give them to students when they would come in and say things like that. When he would like turn around and be like, why don't you go collect yourself? Yeah. <laughs> he did it to graduate students too. I mean, it didn't happen to me because uh... I wasn't about to go in his office and cry, but yeah. Oh, but yeah, so it's, we're a little backed up, but today we are, we're going to talk about, so I've titled it Great Awakenings because... Are we doing the first one too and you didn't tell me? Well, there's a whole argument there and we can kind of talk about the <laughs> argument. I know enough you know about it to, off the top of my head. That you know I'd love right. to like pull a fast one on you and be like, by the way, we're talking about this too. Also, we're going to be going back a hundred years, so... Um. But yeah, we're going to be doing technically the second great awakening is what we're mostly focused on today. But don't ask historians to talk about anything because suddenly you'll find yourself like in Babylonia. Yeah. Or something like to understand Guilty. this. To understand this, you actually have to go all the way back to the beginning of time. We have to talk about when humans first started writing things down. I mean, honestly, though, I actually do, whenever I talk about the Second Great Awakening, I do talk a lot about the Bible and Genesis and stuff. Yeah. And, like, I just, like, if you don't have a background in Christianity or, like, Western theology, you do need to understand these sorts of things in order to understand, you know, the Second Great Awakening. I won't do that today, but you do. You do always have to go back because there's always context. Well, I am going to take us back a little bit. Uh, but... I know you will. I know you will. <laughs> okay. But anyway, so uh, yeah, join us today. Great Awakenings. It should be fun. Um, a lot of people have said they needed this background <laughs> discussion because we talk about the Second Great Awakening all the time. We make reference to it. After today, hopefully you're going to have a pretty good foundation in what the Second Great Awakening was. Let's get into it. All right. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. technical issues um yeah i had a little bit of a mishap for a second but i'm okay now okay all everything's, right everything's all right jeff can see me now we can see each other so he can see me panicking when something's going wrong 
But you could also see Harvey like bounce off the walls when he decides to have like a moment. I really like that. Yeah, it really helps um, give me context to what's going on in your in your yeah, life. I was sitting in a job talk the other day. Oh no. Very serious job talk. And Harvey was just racing around. Yeah. <laughs> just being a complete idiot. Just doing his job. It was hilarious. Um, I was going to turn my camera off because I thought it was distracting. But then the imp in me said, why do that? No, don't. This may be the most interesting thing going on in this job talk for it's most people. It's actually true. I mean, I love it when, I don't like it when people have their cameras blank because I'm like, I don't know if you're there and you're listening, especially with students. They're I would prefer not. to see like the chaos going on around yeah. you, like your animals and your roommates coming in and out. I'd rather see that than just a blank screen because I feel like yeah. I'm just talking into the void, which I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> well... So it is gross here today. Here too. Yeah. It is cloudy and yucky and kind of cool and not sunny. I mean, it's June gloom. Mm-hmm. Um, we get May gray and June gloom. But they said the marine layer is going to stay around most of the day today. Yuck. So well, yep, it's been raining here gonna... for two days and it's no look of letting up um, anytime soon. It looks like rain for the next four or five days. So. I feel you. It's gloomy here, but it's warm. It's nice out. Yeah. It's like 75 degrees. So, Well, you're warmer than we are. Yeah, so. but it's humid. All right. So the second great awakening. The second great awakening. Where do you begin? Okay. Well, here's the thing. Not going back to the beginning of Christianity or Judaism. In a perfect world, I would take us all the way back and talk about that. I think you do have to go back to October 31st, 1517. Okay. I think you have to go back to Martin Luther, basically nailing the 95 Theses. Right. Establishing what we know as Protestantism. Right. Nailing it to the door of All Saints Church and kind of throwing down this gauntlet of, look, what do we really stand for and how do we really do these things? Mm -hmm. Um, Because in the intervening period from 1517 to the early-ish part of the 18th century, about 200 years, um, things changed. Protestant church stops being kind of this, a group of of, uh, people kind of avoiding persecution by the Roman Catholic Church. And in the context of England and the English colonies in America, they are the main religion. Protestantism becomes the main religion, the primary religion, the religion of the state, the religion of kind of almost everybody in society, to the point where we have religious communities established like the Puritans that, that you know, are very clearly descended from Martin Luther's ideas. At the same time, we have a parallel movement that's happening in the Enlightenment. Right. And this idea. And I think that that takes over more. I I think it's, yeah, I think it's an arguable position is like the, the enlightenment is this idea of uh, an emphasis on humanism, an emphasis on humans can solve, solve problems. Humans need to go out and observe things. They need to kind of make decisions based on logic. I'm going to feel it. Yeah. And I'm going to lay down the gauntlet straight away. There are two roads that could have been taken in this country very early on right Mm -hmm. one of the enlightenment and one of religion 
And early on, the Enlightenment wins because, and that's what establishes this country as Enlightenment ideals, because most of the people who were Protestants, like these Puritan communities, they were really fringe, really, really fringe ideas Mm -hmm. and radical. And most people weren't members of these communities. And so in the beginning, it's actually the Enlightenment that takes shape, like makes the country take shape. It's the second great awakening, though, like this super important thing we're going to talk about that ends up changing the narrative of that in order to sound like, oh, we've always been a Christian nation. And I'm going to say straight away, no, that's not true. What do you think? Well, so I think I think you're on to something there. I think what we have to do is this. So when I was um qualifying for my phd there's during about halfway through the process of getting your phd you do this thing in history called qualifying and you can be asked questions and all this stuff and one of my committee members couldn't make it so i met with her separately and it was like it was i was bombarded with questions for like two hours and one of the questions had to do with the great awakening And she very much was on the side that there is no second great awakening. There's only a great awakening. It's just bigger than we thought it was. Um, I disagreed with that at the time. I really firmly disagree with it now. But what I want to say is the most important event in the great awakening, as far as the way we talk about it today, is this guy, Joseph Tracy, who writes about it in 1841. In many ways, he invents the history of the Great Awakening that invents we talk about. Invents the today. history, exactly. And we've talked about that in, in different episodes where, like, our country's history is pretty short, and we had to work pretty hard in order to create these national myths that kind of uh, made us coalesce under one umbrella as a people. Because we've also talked about how everybody had these different interests, like, all the different colonies had different interests. They were practicing different religions. They had different rules, laws, norms, dialects, like all kinds of different things, different immigrant groups that came to these different areas. And so it's in the 1830s and 40s that we're like, we have to have a national cohesive narrative. Mm -hmm. And so much of it centers on this great awakening moment where the idea that we're a Christian nation is kind of birthed at this moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's, and this is the interesting thing. Whenever I teach the first part of U.S. history, I always have to tell students, look, even in the immediate aftermath of independence, the individual colonies are much more firmly tied back to England than they are to one another. That each of the colonies, there's something that connects them back to England, but there's not as much to connect them with one another. And... The Great Awakening is, it's interesting because, so you look at the way Tracy kind of talks about how the, and this is what we would call the first Great Awakening now, how the first Great Awakening plays out. And what he does is he sets up this thing of two figures, Jonathan Edwards in the English colonies and George Whitfield in England. And Whitfield at one point physically moves from England to the American colonies to start being um, an itinerant minister. And, you know, Taylor's making a really powerful statement there. He's making an argument that the future of Protestantism lies in America. It does not lie in England. George Whitfield is aware of that, so he moves. 
Now, Jonathan Edwards, this is not the psychic Jonathan Edwards. Um, but maybe Jonathan he reincarnated. Ed- <laughs> Sorry. So Jonathan Edwards is actually his father had been a really prominent uh, minister, his grandfather as well. So he he comes out of this um, this lineage of ministry in Northampton, which is in Massachusetts. Um, and Massachusetts had been ground zero for the Puritans. And their whole city on a hill thing, right? We've talked about the city on a hill thing before, but they were doing this religious experiment there, this religious community. It was going to be a community of saints. Um, but things start to fracture. Um, Edwards is not like the first generation of Puritans. He's something different. What Can we clarify what years we're talking about here? We're talking about 17... 17- early 1700s so we're yeah. talking about like 17 20 teens and 20s right this is yeah. the first great awakening or what yeah. it would be termed as so we're um, talking pre-revolution i mean by the seven, so 1730s is actually when this thing tracy is is mapping out starts to happen mm-hmm. um and he says 40 to 42 1740 to 1742 are kind yeah. of the high the high moments of the first great awakening um, he doesn't call it the first Great Awakening because when yeah. he's writing the Great Great Awakening, yeah. he's in the midst of what we will later call the Second Great Awakening. Right? He's not like, "Wow, it was so great living through the Second Great Awakening." <laughs> Again, what we always—it's like writing from the Second Great Awakening. I look back to the First Great Awakening fondly. But what's interesting is this: so Edwards is a new light. So we get old lights and new lights. And the old lights are the way the church had been. And the way the church had been was very kind of dogmatic. The Protestant church had become very dogmatic in 200 years. Um, it was very much about a top-down authority. Um, it was not, it had not replicated the divisions that existed in the Roman Catholic Church where you have the papal supremacy and all of that. But there was definitely a view that your local minister knew more about God than you did. And your bishop knew more than your local minister. So you needed to kind of fall in line and do all these things. Remember, the Enlightenment is about individuals deciding things for themselves based on logic and reason. And one of the things Edwards and the other New Lights, including George Whitfield, start to talk about is we've fallen away from the church. People have fallen away from the church. They are not as religious as they used to be. Why is that? Well, the church has lost its way. The church is emphasizing the wrong things, which is that hierarchy. People need to have an individual relationship with God. And this was the whole Puritan. What's interesting is this was the Puritan model initially. Right. This is what made them break away from the Catholic Church in the first place, was, was having building a personal relationship with God. Yeah. Right. Um, so Edwards is preaching this, and Whitfield, Whitfield cracks me up because Whitfield was in, evidently an incredible public speaker he would get thousands of people 
to attend these meetings he was having. I wouldn't call them revivals yet. Revivals is a very second great awakening term. But you've got Edwards, you've got Whitfield, and they advocate for this much more kind of engaged uh, uh, connection with God. Edwards gives probably the most, one of the two or three, now, well, we got to add Martin Luther King Jr. in there. Okay, one of the top five sermons ever given on American soil is delivered by Edwards in 1741. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. It's a good one. It's, but it's important. God owes you nothing. That's what he says. I didn't ask to be born. Well, and what's interesting is he's, he's going back to Luther's theology and saying, look, there's nothing you can do to not burn in hell for all eternity. Because that's, that's the core difference for me between the first and second great awakening is like the first one is just like, everything's predestination. There's mm -hmm. nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's no amount of this or that that's going to get you in heaven. Either you're going or you're not. And the second great awakening is all about like, no, if you behave in this manner, you can give, you can gain entrance into heaven. And that's where we stand now as a nation with this idea where with our current brands of evangelicalism or Protestantism or even Catholicism is like predestination is not really a thing anymore. It's like you have to act a certain way and then you can get your ticket to heaven. But it is in some denominations if you just scratch the surface. You think that predestination is a... It's still there. The Presbyterian church, it's well, officially a, a part of their church. And doctrine. I think what we talked about last week, like with Mormons... I think I think a lot of it's predicated on like what color is your skin and then maybe you can go to heaven, right? I mean, and how much money do you give to the church? But mm -hmm. the idea, I mean, is like I think for me that those are the big differences though, because I think in the first great awakening it was very much like, you know, everything's just determined and we're here living life and everything's already decided for us. But the second great awakening, these preachers go around to people and they are able to fire people up to say, Hey, you can, you can do this too, but you know, you can, you can go to heaven if you do these things. And so then people became attracted to it again. People became attracted to religion again, thinking, oh, I have to complete this task list in order to go to heaven. Whereas before it was just like, well, I'm either I'm going or I'm not. It became like, there's more active participation, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so. So you've got Whitfield, so you've got Edwards, and and I think an important distinction here too is Edwards is not itinerant. Edwards preaches almost completely in his home parish in Northampton, Massachusetts. Whitfield, on the other hand, I mean, literally travels the Atlantic Ocean, um, travels thousands of miles by the end of his career, and is so captivating, he actually attracts the attention of famous agnostic Americans like Benjamin Franklin. The two become close friends. Well, friends. I don't know about close friends. Um, Edwards, uh, Edwards' sermons are kind of angry. I mean, it's sinners in the hand of an angry God. It's, it's kind of representative of what he did. Whitfield's is much more kind of a love kind of conquers all thing. Um, and... Both these men, I think, their approaches 
combine by the end of the 18th century as we get something we would today call the Second Great Awakening. So after the 1740s, things kind of simmer down. Uh, I think there's a potential for social upheaval in the kind of 1740s. And I think the Enlightenment, along with this kind of new way of looking at religion, both open up that possibility. And there's a little bit of that that does actually happen. But the rest, I think, has to wait. I don't think societally people are ready for what the Second Great Awakening is going to say. Well, and here's the thing, too. We mentioned a little bit earlier, but it's important to point out again, it's like, the first great awakening that's happening in the 1730s and 40s is happening in an isolated place. It's mm-hmm. there's no United States of America at this time. There are these disparate colonies that are loosely connected to the British crown just off doing their own thing. They've got their own economies, they've got their own ways of life, they've got their own denominations. Um and you know, Virginia is nothing like uh Massachusetts at this time. Nothing like it. it. Just like the Carolinas aren't either, right? I mean, like everyone's just off doing their own thing. And so you have this mm-hmm. awakening that's taking place in this really isolated location in the Northeast. Whereas with the Second Great Awakening, it's there is a United States. There is a, an attempt at cohesion at this point. Um, and so to say that, you know, well, the First Great Awakening was influential broadly like it wasn't it was it was influential in a very small area well i don't know about i think the first great awakening is very english it is well by its very nature because there is no united states but but i think it actually ties one of our professors in grad school used to make this argument i think the first great awakening ties the colonies more firmly with england because there's not kind of a divergence in theology across the churches and all this. It's like, look, we just have to kind of be careful about church hierarchy because it's about the individual's relationship with God. The second great awakening is so American. It's so individualistic. And well, it's, and it's what ends up dictating policy in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens, this is what I tell my students. It's like, Every important thing that happens from abolition, women's rights, labor rights, children's rights. Um, abolition. You know, every, I, yeah, abolition was the first one. I mean, temperance. George right. George Everything Whitfield. that happens is predicated on the Second Great Awakening, this religious revival that happens. Right. But George Whitfield preaches to slaves. Right. I mean, it's... It, so I think there's there's an argument within history about is should we really separate these two things? Because the tail yes. end of the first Great Awakening is 1760 and the beginning of the second Great Awakening is 1790. It's a 30-year gap between the two. Are they really two different things? Or are they just kind of a long, drawn-out process? No, they're two different things because, okay. like you said, the first one is so related to England and British this and that and theology. The second one is American. We have a country at this point and it, it is so different. And it's to me, policy in the United States, the way our governments run, the types of issues that we take issue with to this day, 
are all related to the second great awakening. And they're not related to that fervor of the first and the theology of the first. Um, you can say these are two religious movements that take place roughly, you know, within the same, you know, about the same hundred years. But I think that the two are just so, so different because of the circumstances and context surrounding them. You have like, the, you can't discount the importance of the American Revolution and the breakaway from Great Britain. I, I just don't think that can be discounted in in characterizing the Second Great Awakening as uniquely American. I'm going to make the argument, which do you think is more important for you, sister? First or second? Second, hands down, all day. Okay, I'm going to make the argument this is the first. Okay, I love it. Go. <laughs> Uh, you're so wrong, the first, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> um, I'm going to, I have a couple of components to this. First of all, um, higher education, Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, Dartmouth, all get established as a result of the first great awakening. These centers of education become. They're theology, right? It's like theological they're theology. seminaries. They're all founded yeah. as theological seminaries, but they become crucibles for ideas. And here's the thing. If the first great awakening is about spiritually being free to pursue your own relationship with God, it's a pretty short road from that to a demand for political freedom. Um, I would also say it connects people across religion. Um, Interdenominational cooperation becomes much more possible because of the first great awakening. Because the church hierarchies that separate people don't seem as important. And you have that separation of old lights and new lights. So you already have churches that fracture from conservative churches to churches that embrace the ideas of the Great Awakening. So here's the thing. If you're Presbyterian, and I'm Congregationalist, and we both go to the new light version of our churches because we like the things Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield are saying, we are going to have a lot more in common with one another. And we're going to see across those those denominational barriers. I would argue the Great Awakening may have been the thing that facilitated the American Revolution. I don't think it's a coincidence. Seventeen. You don't think that's Enlightenment ideology that is what? But, well, yes, I think I think it's a twin thing, though. I think you have to have both. I mean, the the first Great Awakening church membership in New England doubles in a two year period. Um, but again, that's a small area. It is a small area, but it's a very influential area. I mean, that's the but, thing. Okay, so but then like the founding father people, right? Who we you know talk about cons like Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Madison, Monroe, like all these big guys that we're always talking about. They outright dismiss religion. They do, but where does the American Revolution start? Enlightenment ideology and where, through pamphlet, lo- pamphlets. Where geographically? Okay, but it's not because of religion. It's because of pamphlets that are spreading enlightenment ideas. You don't think Boston, like, I I, I think we got to give it's Boston. Important. It's, uh, yeah, but it, like, there's lots of things going on in Boston other than religion. We have Boston to thank for several things. Duncan. Duncan, A. I like Dunkin' Donuts. I'm yeah. a Krispy Kreme fan. I don't like Dunkin' Donuts. I like Dunkin' Krispy Donuts are terrible, but the coffee's good. Send send that hate mail to Hillary. <laughs> well, Dunkin' Donuts like their donuts are always like stale. Uh, maybe that was just the place I went, but 
That's why you got to go to Krispy Kreme and get them those when they're hot when, and ready. when the lights on. When the lights up, on, that's up. yep. Um, <laughs> anyway, I Boston. To, I went. To, I went to go get a dozen donuts. I ate three, waiting to get my dozen. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, it's an appetizer. But I, I think Boston. I think Boston is essential. I think Boston is like the epicenter of the American Revolution. You don't have it without Boston, and people around Boston are fundamentally transformed by the first great awakening. I think that's the argument. Um, and remember one of the Harvey is giving his, uh, his input on this as well. One of the sayings during the revolutionary war is no King, but King Jesus. Okay. I see what you're saying. I agree. Boston is very, very important. And in Boston is where you have the true patriots, right? And this will make people so pissed off. But it's like Philadelphia was not where the patriotic people were. Like the vast majority of people in Philadelphia were loyalists. There's actually a very small percentage of people in Philadelphia who were uh, patriots. Boston is where you do have those patriots. But Boston is not just important because of, there's a religious revival that happens there, what, 60 years prior, 50 years prior. Um, it's important because that that is, it's important because it's also the epicenter of the dissemination of the ideas of enlightenment ideology. It's where you get, you know, the, the pamphlets like common sense. And it's where you start spreading ideas and you know because you're saying like well it's really important yeah it is really important because it's like a cultural and intellectual center of what is to become the united states and yes religion plays a factor in it but to me if we're talking like religion versus enlightenment i think enlightenment wins the day when we're talking the revolution because it's that enlightenment ideology that trickles down to all the other colonies. You don't have the first great awakening fervor and religious fervor trickling down to say like the Carolinas, but you do have enlightenment ideology trickling down in order to spur the American revolution. Does that make well, sense? I think it's, I think it's why our revolution is ultimately a very conservative thing is the sons of Liberty in Boston. Don't, they aren't able to translate that kind of religious fervor into a broader colony-wide movement. Well, and it's not just that they're not able to do that, but you've got all these other players involved. Like anybody coming out of Virginia, Virginia is not a religious place. Right? John Randolph um, says that religion, Virginia was the most ungodly country on the face of the earth where the gospel has ever been preached. That's what he says about Virginia. And you've got like, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who's the governor of Virginia during the American Revolution, and he defunds the seminary. He defunds theological positions at William and Mary. And so I think that you have a lot of people who we would say are like the fathers of the country or whatever, um, were just, you know, completely opposed to religion. And when asked in 1820, they asked Monroe, like, well, how come you didn't put anything about God or religion in the Constitution? He goes, oh, we forgot. So it's like, this isn't on the minds of everybody who's like drafting these documents. It's not on the minds of the founding fathers. As a matter of fact, it's on their minds to say, we have to separate these two things. They were so, so intentional about not allowing religion to 
distort or guide the principles that founded this nation. And it's not until the second great awakening that you start to have a rewriting of that history. Ben Franklin said that lighthouses are more useful than churches. Right? <laughs> yes. Like, I, but I don't think, I don't think our arguments are necessarily incompatible. I, I think here's the thing. I think, I think the revolution would have looked very different if the people who had been religiously influenced the most by the great first great awakening had been the ones who had been the architects of our founding documents. I think you would have, I think you would have seen a lot more religion present. But they weren't. And that's the point. But they right? weren't. Yeah. Right. I mean, here's the thing is I think that, that they aren't, even though it becomes the initial flashpoint for the break with Britain, it's very quickly the mid Atlantic and the Chesapeake that take over the narrative. I mean, that's the thing is you, so you've got Massachusetts and it's pretty isolated because New York is a loyalist hotbed, New Jersey as well. Yeah. And like I said, Harvey's, Philadelphia is very fired up about today's conversation. He doesn't like that. I'm arguing with you, but so is Philadelphia. I mean, you've got these strongholds where most, uh, I mean, it's like loyalist strongholds all throughout. And this is something that I talk with my students about often during, um, you know, like a survey of the first half of American history. It's like, look, I always say, I'm sorry if I've repeated this on here before I, I'm getting old, but I'll be like, raise your hand if you would have been a patriot during the American Revolution. And they all raise their hands like, no, you wouldn't. I would I would have been a patriot yeah. nurse in a hospital. Yeah. Right. It's like, a, no, a, no, no, you wouldn't no. have been a patriot. B, there weren't hospitals. And right. Because only were... about a quarter of people, like one fourth, and that's like a high estimate of people identified as patriots or, you know, like supporters of the Continental Army, supporters of revolution. Most people were just completely apathetic or didn't care about it. And then a most like the other portion of people, well over a quarter of people were hardcore loyalists because why wouldn't they be? Well, conservatives, they were British. conservatism always has more adherence than kind of a progressive approach because it's known even if the current situation isn't ideal, it is known. It will always be more popular and easier for people to do that, to maintain the status quo, just because they know it's a known entity. And Change it's where their identity lies. Yeah. These people identify as we're British. We are oh, yeah. subjects of the crown. We don't, we're well, not our own country. Well, particularly... I mean, here's the thing. So the first Great Awakening ends 1760, 1763, you get the Seven Years' War, um, arguably the first global war. And it it really connects the colonists firmly with Britain. Yeah, because that's who's protecting them on their own turf. Well, once George Washington starts open conflict in the Americas. Well, sure. He was, he was responsible for this. <laughs> He's not the best general. But another not fully known fact from a lot of my students is like he was a British general. Yeah. He was a red coat. You know, he yeah. got his training from there. He cut his teeth in the French and Indian Wars. Right. And so when you talk about it in that context of like, look, these people who lived in these regions knew nothing of a United States of America. 
these people who were living at this time were like, yeah, revolution. Like, no, they were just living their life day to day. Some of them were keen on the idea and were informed about it. Most of them were just going about their day to day lives and hearing about it here and there because they weren't involved in skirmishes. They weren't, they didn't see, you know, fighting taking place. I mean, they, they definitely noticed that there were, you know, that there was upheaval and they knew maybe about it, but like a lot of people didn't even take a firm stance one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And so to say like, well, I would have been a Patriot. It's like, no, you probably wouldn't have been. So what happens to spark like the second great awakening? What is the, what is the thing if, if kind of the, uh, um, growth of enlightenment ideas and kind of this scientific approach and this rejection of things simply because we've always done it this way and examination of everything kind of sparks the first great awakening. What sparks the second great awakening? I would say it's settlement and movement of people into the frontier areas. And by frontier, frontier, we mean places like Western Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Ohio. I mean, Kentucky becomes the essential component of this second great awakening, I think. So you get people moving to these areas that are, um, they're building like brand new towns, brand new settlements. And we've talked about this before, where people start to have an anxiety over, um, you know, change and anxiety over technology, anxiety over population shifts, anxiety over conflict, war, whatever. And we have all these things happening around, you know, the late 18th and early 19th century. And so they start to lean on religion and you start to have what they call um, camp meetings that begin. Mm -hmm. And they're these huge revivals. You didn't want to use that word for the first great awakening, but like a revival, meaning that you have a preacher who travels all around, stands up on a soapbox. Yeah. And like preaches and people like it because Mm -hmm. it's not just a form of entertainment because it is a form of entertainment at that time. Like if you think about it, like what is it's not like they're watching Netflix, right? So it's like a form of entertainment. It's a form of like live, live entertainment. Um, And it's, it's captivating because you have people who are really great orators and they have, you know, this really profound message. And so people come from all over and they're moved by these messages of hope and faith. Um, And, you know, this new idea is being preached. Like you can change your life eternally. You can change your eternal life by your actions in this present life. And people are totally swept up by it. And it's a lot of young people, teenagers, early twenties who are swept up in this revival. Well, this is, so this is romanticism. This is, I call BS, I call BS on the enlightenment's approach to kind of this methodical, logical approach to living. We are, that is not how we should live. We need to live with emotion and passion and um, enthusiasm. And it's okay for you to jump up and shout when you're happy. Um, And I wanted to play a quick clip really quickly. All right. Arguably the most famous Protestant hymn ever written, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther. For centuries, it had been a mainstay of Protestant churches. Who was singing that? A boy. It's some child. Is it like a castrati? No, it's it's like a little little boy. Um, Hated it. 
But it's like the second great awakening is like, no, <laughs> not that. <laughs> right. That's not what we want. And it's very American. I mean, it is. There is not anything stopping anybody from just deciding to get on a horse and go start riding around and preaching. Right. And just spreading whatever they feel like saying. Yeah. There's Mormonism, no establishment to it. Mormonism. Yeah. It's a product uh, of this moment. Adventism. Uh-huh. Um, all of those things coming out of New York, the burned over district are parts of this. And I, but I think one of the things that spurs this, I don't think it is a coincidence the market revolution is happening at the same time. I agree. And I think we've made that argument in the past and said, well, we need to talk about the Second Great Awakening. But that is true. The market revolution, you have people moving from, um, you know, agriculture and farms into cities, and that gives people a lot of anxiety. But at the same time, you also have people settling in these frontier districts, um, Western Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Ohio, um, and other places. And what I would say about it is like, maybe this is too like primitive or like elementary of a, of an explanation. It's like, there's no regulation over it. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like anybody can just be like, I'm going to go preach to people. And if the only thing that is required is like, does anyone want to listen to you? Mm-hmm. You could ride from town to town to town. And all you would need is just to get people to listen to you. And if you get a couple dozen or more, maybe a hundred, You've got yourself a little religion, you know, like you've got yourself a following. You have a different branch of Christianity. I mean, so many branches of Christianity just like flourish at this time. And then you also have what we've talked about in the past, like the sprouting out of these uh, sprouting up of these utopian communities where people are seeking truth and they're seeking uh, salvation and they're seeking peace on earth in order to have like a, an eternal peace and all this like, People are kind of like being hippies a little bit at this time. And there's just no regulation over it, right? There's no like central authority that's like, okay, I'm blessing you a cardinal. And then you go and preach to people. It's just like, my name's Jim and I want to tell people what I think. And if anyone listens to Jim, then Jim's got a following. There's no regulation. So So here's where I think historians who argue the first and second great awakening are really just one thing. They would argue that First Great Awakening has laid that foundation of a rejection of church hierarchy already. Well, but Protestantism in general does that when you said it like going back to Martin Luther. Well, yeah, that's what their I mean, whole beef does. was. It does. But after 157, well, no. <laughs> I mean, his beef is the church leadership misusing its power. I mean, right. remember Luther. Right. Luther says, after the peasants revolt in Germany, Luther's like, whoa, I don't mean all of you can make up your mind on these things. Well, and then Henry VIII wanted to marry his 19th wife. So that was also a factor. (laughs) But but an interesting thing you noted is this is predominantly young people under 25 that are converting, at least initially. But it's also very gendered. There's a lot of women. For every two men Mm -hmm. who convert three women convert. Yeah. Nancy Cott has a piece about this, about um, young women in New England in the second great awakening. We love Nancy Cott. We do. Yeah. So I actually assigned that piece um, to my students last semester um, talking about women. And, and, you know, one of the reasons that women are so involved is because of what we we've talked about in the past. It's like, there is an attempt for more, for establishing more egalitarian societies. There is an attempt to have more gender equity. 
Yeah. And like, just, you know, kind of reforming society in general, like women can be involved, women can be, um, you know, their opinions valued and stuff. And so I think a lot of young women were very drawn to this. And a lot of young women also, because it's the market revolution are leaving their parents and they're starting to enter the workforce and stuff. And they're kind of looking for some grounding. And I think a lot of women seek, young women seek out religion as a form of grounding. So the second great awakening churches start to address social issues more so than they had in the first great awakening. And that's the most important part to me. Yeah. And I, and I think that would, that would be your critical evidence to say, look, they are different. Um, So more recent historians have argued the second great awakening is part of a more broadly transatlantic change in religion that's happening. But the Second Great Awakening starts to address the specific, what people see as specific social ills. And one of the biggest is slavery. Now, initially, uh, these circuit riders are preaching to slaveholders and enslaved people simultaneously. Um, but that starts to change. Um, well, and the idea that you can you can create your own destiny by doing good acts in this life. You can secure your space in heaven by acting right. Makes people think like, wow, we need to address social ills. Slavery is wrong. Poverty is awful. Um, I mean, even things down to prison reform, which I've talked a lot about in the past and a lot of my work, my dissertation work was about prison reform. And it comes out of this era too, because you have people who are like, we need to help those less fortunate than us. We need to help. We need to help them. You know, if somebody is on the wrong path, we need to help them be penitent. So that way they, and that's where we get the term penitentiary. So that way they can go to heaven too. Um, we need to get people free, you know, freed from the yoke of slavery. So that way they can be their own people and you make get their the own first, choices. You get the first black minister ordained by a mainline church in the United States um, Richard Allen is ordained by the Methodist Church. He eventually founds the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, well, so and Nat Turner is a preacher during the Second Nat Great Turner, Awakening. Gabriel Prosser is really influenced by camp meetings and revivals and this whole idea of this kind of uh, inspirational public speaking that encouraged an emotional response well, and that's the, when slaves were banned from attending services unless they yep. went with their owners and they mm-hmm. were banned from preaching and they were banned from learning to read. Literacy became a crime during the Second Great Awakening because you had people who start reading the Bible and that was dangerous to slave owners. And then a lot of the people who end up founding this first wave of, util- uh, of utopian communities we talked about previously, like Henry Ward Beecher they come out of the second great awakening as well. Um, Because here's the idea. If you can passionately engage with religion, why can't you use that passion and that engagement with God to fundamentally change the world, address slavery, address alcohol, address all of these kind of poverty, all these bad things in society. Maybe the best thing you can do is found your own community. You founded your own religion. Now let's found our own community. 
when so many people end up doing that. And it's not just utopian communities, but it's like people who are settling in like in westward expansion. You know, there are people founding their own towns. And then the first things that'll crop up a lot of times there's a place to worship. And you get your own brand. I mean, you still that's still the case in the United States today. Like even if there's some like church that's a similar denomination, like you can just get your own brand of everything depending on what region you're in, what time you go. Like, I mean, who the preacher is that day. Like there is like a real lack of uniformity, I think, in American religion that you just don't that it's again, it's like this uniquely American thing. Like you go to an Anglican church in England and like, you're just going to kind of get the same thing. Kind of like if you go to a Catholic church, like, you know, you like you sit, you stand, you kneel, you say this, you say that you leave a lot of these Protestant denominations and a lot of these churches that are founded, like it's kind of a mixed bag, what you're going to hear, what you're going to see, what's going to be said, what's going to be done, what the message is. It's, it's disparate depending on the region. And I think that that's rooted in the second great awakening where everyone's just kind of doing their own thing and there's no regulation over it and there's no hierarchy to it. So what do you think about the argument that the Second Great Awakening actually encourages the full formation of a two-party system in the country? That we have to have dissenting voices. What do I think about that argument? Well, are you making that argument? I mean, the argument's been made, not by me, but by others. But like, do you think that? Possibly. I I mean, they're contemporaneous. They're, they're at the same time. But again, I think that like rooting it in religion doesn't make, I mean, I guess so, because then you get like people who are religious and who are part of this revival are all about social reform and social reform does become the hallmark of one party versus the other. Yeah. The Whigs become a very social reform focused party. Yeah. So I think if you have, you know, if you're thinking about religious revival at this time and who's involved and, and it's all about so much of it is about social policy, then that's rooted in politics. And I would say now, what's most certainly the case, right? Like religion Mm -hmm. is like, I would say the number one marker for figuring out political affiliation. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a third great awakening? Right now? No. Um, I, I think that the eighties and the nineties, the 1980s and the 1990s in this country were a, a third great awakening of really conservative evangelical doctrine that has leaked into politics so heavily. So that would be the fourth great awakening. So you think that there was something before then? I'm just talking about, so different historians have kind of imagined this. So some historians argue the third great awakening is 1855 to 1930. That's a really long time. That's a really long time. I don't know if I um, buy that. It, it, I mean, it encompasses progressive, the progressive era, but it also encompasses like the high point of the abolitionist movement. I mean, I think people who argue this would argue people like Charles Grannis and Finney are part of the third great awakening, not the second. Okay, Finney, I I don't know. I've not heard third great awakening, but Finney to me seems I mean this is and this is a point of contention among historians of religion. Charles Grandison Finney, I think, is very much a part of the second great awakening. Um I also think moral perfectionism is a second great awakening idea. It the is the idea yeah, that, that you, you can, can change, change yourself right now. Yeah, that's a second great awakening. So what would what would differentiate the third from the second? Is there an I, argument there? 
it's not very good. It's just a it's just a chronological thing. They say that something changes that they that now they just don't that they are doing organized things like the women's Christian temperance movement, all of these things. Yeah, but that's I, all rooted in the Second Great Awakening. Right. Temperance was a huge I, I deal argue, with I Beecher, agree. right? Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. But I mean, moral perfectionism really quickly, though, for people who might be wondering what moral perfectionism is. So you could be a slave owner. You could go to a camp meeting with your slaves because that's the only way they can hear it is if you're with them at this point. Um, you could, during the camp meeting, decide to renew your commitment to Christ and kind of publicly proclaim this, emancipate your slaves repudiate the institution of slavery and you would be washed clean of all those sins that it could happen that quickly. That sounds very Catholic. Just go to confession, (laughs) say you're sorry. But you have to do something. But I mean, what's interesting is is that there is a, there's an element of you have to do something. The Catholics just make you say five Hail Marys. Right. Um, You have to prove your, your, yeah, prove your. But I think what's awakening. right. I think what's really interesting about it is, is it holds out promise for fixing social social ills. Like we can fix them. We can all make this country a paradise tomorrow if we choose to do so. The only thing that's stopping us is we're actively choosing not to do this. What's interesting now is like it's the opposite. It's not true. Like. What, people that, who are fervently religious are tend to be more conservative and not want progressive policy that helps people. They're most likely to reject immigrants or immigration. They're most likely to reject, um, you know, caring for infants or women. Uh, they're most likely to reject social safety net measures. Um, they're most likely to reject something like a prison reform or abolition in prisons. And it's people who are agnostic or non-religious who are more, um, supportive of progressive policy in the United States at this I time. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that is an assumption um, because I think what it's doing is saying if somebody is for kind of these progressive reforms, they are inherently not religious. No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't make it that cut and dry. No, but I think that's how some people would present it. No, I, yeah, I, I don't feel that way. If you but, support something like gay marriage, you are automatically not a religious person, I think would be. Well, I think a lot mean. of religion, a lot of evangelical strains that run deep in this country would say that you're not. They would say you're rejected from our space. We don't even want right. you here. Right. Unless well, you're going to Chick-fil-A with us, we don't want you here. Well, then you can just start your own religion. Well, and that's what a lot of times people do. Just don't wait for a UFO to come rescue you. Oh, man. We really should have started here before we went into all those other things. I think it's, I think it's kind of interesting visiting here kind of the end of this kind of sequence of discussions we've had about religion. Because I think it's it's very academic, first of all. Right? I mean, this is the argument of first, second, third, possibly even a fourth grade awakening. It's a very academic argument. Um, the distinctions, I read a couple of articles about a third and a fourth great awakening and my eyes just glazed over. I was like, really? Okay, sure. Well, Cause it just starts to get nitpicky. I mean, I think the important thing to take away from this though, is like for me and what I try to talk to my students about is like, 
this country was not founded as a religious nation. Like the founding documents of this nation, the people who wrote them up, the people who wanted to design the government had absolutely no interest in tying it to Christianity. It is not until about 20 or 30 years later that you get this revisionist history where religion does take over and it does start to motivate all social policy that you see happen in the 19th century. And then you start to get these, this myth that we are founded as a Christian nation. And a lot of that myth is rooted in like, well, the Puritans came over from here. And it's like, the Puritans are nothing like what's going mm -hmm. on in the second great awakening. They would reject everything that you're saying in the second great awakening. Right. And so like, we start to build this myth where, you know, the kids are coloring pilgrims and all this in their elementary schools. Well, I mean, and you it's, get this, it's wrong. It's a wrong I, interpretation. I I don't think that it's coincidental that in the 1830s we're reimagining our origins as religious because it's the same time uh, Shoemaker and the Tea Party. Right. A great book called Shoemaker and the Tea Party when uh, when basically in the 1830s we go back and reinvent what the revolution was and who the main players in the right. revolution were and what it was all about. We have to rewrite our history in order to make it sound more exciting than it was or more, more cohesive more cohesive more more nationalistic like how yeah. do we create a narrative that's going to weave everybody together and make everybody feel like a, South this Carolina is never no. an enthusiastic participant in the revolution no I mean, Charleston like <laughs> get out of town a lot of places weren't and so you have but to go like back the in the 1820s right. and 30s and pretend like everyone was getting along, getting along hunky-dory. Mm -hmm. And that's simply not the case. The mo most people would have preferred to stay under British rule, plain and simple, if polled. Yeah. Right? No, yeah. I, I agree. Um, so that's, I mean, those are the broad contours of the Great Awakenings. I think you can make an argument there too. I think it gets really sketchy when you start arguing there's a third and a fourth, um, which is interesting because I think it's in many ways, it's similar to when we teach women's history and talk about first and second wave feminism. Well, um, I, I don't think it's important to label like, Oh, it's a third. Oh, it's a fourth or it's this or that. I do think it's important though. Like when I was saying in the eighties and nineties, like, we know 20th century history isn't my jam or late 20th century history. But if I'm talking about politics in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s to a class, it is crucial to bring up religion and it is crucial well, to bring up evangelical religion. Right. I think it it's starts the 70s there. But like, man, the 80s and stuff like the conservative policies that come out and Roe all this, like, yeah, well, Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade is Ro what motivates the backlash right. that you see right. in the 80s the Phyllis Schlafly's of the world. Like you have to understand religion and evangelical Christianity in order to understand like, whoa, how, like, why are politics this, like, why is there this much vitriol in politics? It's like, well, it's rooted in religion and it's rooted in a conservative backlash as a reaction to the sixties and the seventies and the more progressive policies, integration, abortion, um, like great society, right? I mean, there are so many mm -hmm. things where it's like there's a hardcore conservative backlash that's rooted in religion. And you have to understand that in order to understand politics. At that Why time. does the U.S. lose Vietnam? Well, it's because we've lost our way religiously. 
God has withdrawn that becomes his a, favor. an explanation, right? Right. God's withdrawn his favor from the nation. We have to figure out a way to put it back on us. We are God's chosen nation. The Puritans said that when they said city on a hill. Yeah, we're throwing I mean, it Reagan back Reagan does this. Right. Reagan's farewell address, he says this. And it's, and it's interesting. I mean, that's the thing is I think you have to understand the Great Awakening to understand U.S. history. I think that is 100% correct. Like it does not... It does not make sense unless you understand both Great Awakenings. Um, although I still wonder, like, do you get the American Revolution without Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield? Do you even get that assault on kind of institutional authority? I, I say yes. I don't know. The Boston Massacre, the Stamp Act, the Intolerable Acts. Well, but I mean, I mean, mean, the argument is you get the American Revolution because the British are taxing the shit out of the colonists for the for paying for the French Indian War and they don't want to pay for it. Is that religiously rooted or is that economically rooted? But I think here's the thing is I think that you don't get those hooligans in Boston throwing rocks at the Hooligans. unless there had been kind of this assault on authority that the maybe. first great awakening had done maybe it like imprinted on them like stick it to I the man I, th- I think it's an interesting question it, it, it i think it would be a very interesting debate to see kind of two scholars of religion and a scholar of kind of early revolutionary thought get together and kind of talk about this and kind of say, which is more important is one more important than the other. Are they equally important? Um, because it's it, it, the United States relationship with religion is complicated. It both wants to be a religious nation, but it doesn't want to be a religious nation. It That's the, that's the split that we still see today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good talk. Yeah. Excellent. All right. I like that you have, Jeff is holding Harvey like a baby right now. And that's how he got him to calm down. the only way to get him to calm down. (laughs) He was out of control. He got so fiery. He was like second great awakening. Second great awakening. That's right. Okay. Well, I don't know what we're doing next week. But I liked our focus on religion for the last several weeks. It's been good. Um, if you have any suggestions on what you'd like to hear us talk about next, I have, a, I have an idea. Know. June okay. is Gay Pride Month. Okay. Or Pride Month. Yeah. I'm not supposed to call it Gay Pride anymore. It's, gay, it's Pride Month. Pride Month. June is Pride Month. Um, let's talk about Stonewall. Okay. I know you have a lot of very strong feelings. <laughs> So I'll make sure that I'm well prepped. If there's anything other than Stonewall you would also like to discuss, please let me know so I can well, also I mean, be prepared. Well, I mean, let's talk about let's do Stonewall okay. and how do historians approach issues like sexuality. Okay, we can do that. I think that's a so there's a more expansive discussion we can have, and then we can have this discussion about this specific moment. Okay. Um. Hillary and I both, our research touches on sexuality, although we neither of us directly engages with it. Um, I think that's a fair statement, right? That we don't engage with what? I'm sorry? That that both, that our research, oh, our research gets close to talking about sexuality, but we don't overtly engage with it. It's not 
Well, I engage with it a lot because I'm a gender studies professor. So I teach a lot about this, but no, my research but is not. But I mean not, your research, no, right, your correct. research, right. 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 Um, yeah, should be fun. All right, guys. We'll, we'll do that and that'll be that'll be for Pride Month. Sounds great. Put Thank you for out. joining us today. All right. I'm Hillary. Yeah. And I'm Jeff. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.